Okay, we're honored to have Jack Curry, uh, a sportscaster for the Yes Network and co-author with Paul O'Neill of Paul O'Neill's biography, or autobiography, actually, swinging to hit nine innings of what baseball taught to me. Jack, thanks a lot for coming on Ira on Sports. Ira, it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, thanks for giving us a chance to uh, talk about our book. So Paul came out with this book, and it's, it's, it's interesting because his number is going to be retired by the Yankees on August 21st. Of course, his number was 21. And so that, is that sort of what the reason for the writing of the book was to, in conjunction with the retiring of his number? Great question, Ira, but I'm going to tell you a, a great journalism story here. So this book was finished. This book was done in late January, and Paul calls me in early February and says, I just heard from the Yankees that they're retiring my number in August. And he was very emotional about it. And then he said to me, but you can't tell anyone. So I couldn't tell the editor or the publisher yet because the Yankees were going to announce it in a few days. And this was your literal and figurative stop the presses because we had to then stop producing the book. I interviewed Paul. We did about 2,000 words on the retirement of number 21 and tucked it into one of the later chapters. So no, we actually already were working on the book for close to a year when, when he got that great news about his number, and it was kind of a surprise to him because the Yankees had already given him a plaque in, in Monument Park uh, several years ago. And sometimes the number retirement goes along in conjunction with the plaque. He didn't get that at that time, and so he was thrilled to hear that the number was now going to be retired. And and we're happy to hear it because hopefully people will want to read about it in the book. And then number 21, and it sort of teased it at the end, that was because of Roberto Clemente. Uh, Clemente's number was 21, and he was a big fan of Clemente's and was able to uh, actually get an, a fake autograph. He said one time his dad signed the autograph and said it was from him, but it was a, it was, it was a hero of his, and he was, that's why he wore 21. His dad was a Cincinnati Reds fan, of course, growing up in Ohio, but the first game Paul ever attended was a Pirates game. So you're astute, and you read the book closely because you're right. Here's little Paul O'Neill out in the right field uh, grandstand, as high up as you could be probably for a ticket, and as his father wanted to take a picture of him, he made sure to situate it so that who was in the background? Roberto Clemente, and Paul was complaining about not getting Clemente's autograph that day, so... His dad, being a, a dutiful parent, disappeared for a little while and brought back a Roberto Clemente autograph on a sheet of paper. But Paul had a couple of older brothers who were a little savvier than the seven-year-old and later told him, don't you think that signature looks a lot like dad's? And, of course, Paul hung on to the paper for a little while. But the point you're trying to make is it stands. He ends up years later getting handed number 21 by the Reds. And where's that for the Reds? Where's it for the Yankees? And to him, it does tie back to Clemente and how his father was such a fan of an opposing player. And the way Paul describes it is there aren't many people in baseball history who were probably the best player on the field every time they played. And he puts Clemente in that category. Wow. And then I, what I liked about your book, and I've, I've actually sent the book out, or uh, pre-ordered it. You can order it on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and everything. Um, it's coming out to this week. 
But the, what I'm interested about is the hitting style. We've had Dave Parker on our show. We had Rod Crew on our show. It seems like I have all the hitters that are like line drive hitters, not the home run hitters. And, and you spend in the book about how this whole problem that he dealt with, even there in the 2000s, like, I don't want to hit home runs. I would hit a line drive hitter. And everyone was like, Lou Pinella, no, you got it. You're six foot four. You got to hit home runs. And, and that battle between it. But then, you know, you talked about it, the whole detail about how to hit. It's anyone who's a hitter, who has a son who's a hitter or a daughter who's a hitter, this is a great book because you really go into the whole minutia of how to be a great hitter. Right, and the thing I, that Paul stresses, and that we try to stress too, Ira, in the book, and you do a great job of just detailing it, is Paul says you have to be comfortable as a hitter. You have to be confident. So there are many different ways to hit. But he does go into detail about why his approach worked for him and why he does think it can work for others. And Paul was taught at, taught at a young age by his dad a line drive swing that – at the end of it, had a slight uppercut, which if you read Ted Williams' book, The Science of Hitting, that's the way Ted Williams hit. And Paul was a lefty hitter. His father thought that he reminded him of Ted Williams. So Paul doesn't go in and criticize today's hitters, but a lot of guys today, it's more of that, that uppercut that starts from the beginning of your swing. Paul liked the idea of a level swing because he thought that kept his bat in the strike zone longer. He also, Ira, swung at the top of the baseball. And when you try to swing at the top of the baseball, that's because you want to make contact. Guys who are hitting at the bottom of the baseball, they're trying to send it 450 feet, but there's also a chance you're going to miss it more often. And then you tell the story in the book. And actually went for researching this interview. I watched the Kramer. I've seen, I've seen it a hundred times. I want to see it again about when uh, Kramer was on Seinfeld and, and he went up to Paul O'Neill and said, I have a kid. He tried to get something back from this kid. And he goes, I, uh, Paul O'Neill hit two home runs. And then they have the scene of him <laughs> meeting Paul O'Neill and saying, I promise this kid you're going to hit two home runs. He goes, wait, I'm not a home run hitter. Why are you making this promise? And why did you promise two? <laughs> I was, as I was writing the book, Ira, sometimes, I mean, we all have our little places where we escape. So some nights I'll, uh, I'll watch a couple episodes of Seinfeld because it just makes me laugh all these years later. And that episode came up and it was funny because we had already written that and, and that was Paul's line. I mean, Paul said that throughout the process and we put that in there, but he didn't, even though he hit almost 300 homers in his career and had some big homers in the postseason, some big homers for the Yankees, he felt that he... When he hit a home run, everything almost had to be perfect. The, he had to catch the pitch. He had to be out front a little bit. Whereas if he hit a line drive to left center field, he could do that in his sleep. And, and that's the player and the hitter that he really wanted to be more so than the home run hitter. And then when he came up, it was interesting. He was there. Just a, He came up about a two days or three days before Pete Rose set the all-time hit record, beating Ty Cobb, which is probably exciting to be that. And then Pete Rose was his first uh, Major League Baseball manager, and he loved uh, playing for Pete Rose. Yeah, he, re he really respects and reveres Pete. And in working on this book, I interviewed all of Paul's managers, uh, Pete Rose, Lou Pinella, Buck Showalter, Joe Torre. And to hear Pete talk about Paul, the, the respect was mutual. But you're right, he's barely in the major leagues a minute. <laughs> Does get his first hit as a pinch hitter in his first uh, appearance, which he said was a huge relief. And then shortly after that, here's Pete Rose breaking the record. And O'Neill talked about being sort of the equivalent of the accidental tourist. He's on the field with all of these people congratulating Pete Rose. And to him, Pete Rose is almost still a poster on his wall. But he liked Pete because Pete had a two-strike approach almost every time he was at the plate, and that's the way Paul tried to hit. And Pete was a guy who, who wanted to hit 300. 
And Ira, you and I know that we've gotten to a point in Major League Baseball where averages aren't <laughs> talked about as much, and, and OPS matters. And I get it. I understand that that's a clearer picture. But in Paul's era and in Pete Rose's era, you're trying to hit 300. And what mattered to Paul was hitting 300 and knocking in 100 runs. Those were the things he wanted to do. And not striking out. As anyone who watched Paul O'Neill play, when, when he struck out, everybody you get a, away from him. You don't want to be anywhere near a water cooler or anything when he gets a strikeout. But then his next manager was Lou Pinella, and it was interesting how so he gets to the World Series with Lou. They win the World Series, but the friction between Pinella and O'Neill, because Pinella's one saying, "Got to hit home runs. You're a big guy. Hit him." And that's why you, it was in the book. You said Stick Michael from the Yankees were like, "I knew, I know Lou. I knew Paul. I knew they weren't getting along. I'm going to make this trade, and he's going to be perfect." And he said the first thing he did when he called O'Neill was he says be yourself I want you to be a, a line drive hitter we have enough home run hitters here in Yankee Stadium yes Dick Michael made that transition so much smoother for Paul because he and his wife lifelong Ohio residents weren't real sure about going to New York and adapting and Stick said exactly what you just pointed out listen we've got Mattingly in our lineup and I see you as the kind of hitter that Mattingly is does he hit home runs yes he does but more than that he's a line drive hitter trying to hit the ball to all fields so Paul does go out of his way to point out in the book that he knows that Lou Pinella's interests were his best interest in terms of trying to make Paul a better hitter. They just, they just clashed. They had a different route that they believed they could get to to make him that better hitter. And ironically enough, Ira, the guy Paul ends up befriending and loving playing with, Mattingly, with the Yankees, benefited significantly from Lou Pinella's hitting advice. It worked for him. It was more of a weight shift approach. That didn't work for Paul. Paul was more of a guy who kind of stood tall and then had a leg kick. But, yeah, he, he his transition to New York was helped greatly by Stick calming him down and relaxing him. And then people forget that in the late 80s and early 90s, and even before that, the Yankees were not the Yankees now. And it was really Paul O'Neill who came, and then they got Mariana and Jeter, and they turned that around the 92-93, and that they were losing games beforehand. They didn't just suddenly win four out of five World Series. That They had been bad and then turned it around, and, and that was Paul was sort of part of that. And he enjoyed and, and embraced that aspect of, I'm going to turn this Yankee, we're going to turn it around here at Yankees with these other players. Ira, I started covering baseball in New York in 1990, and... There were some bad Yankee teams in 90, 91, 92. Buck Showalter and Gene Michael are the two who got this team into a rebuilding mode, from rebuilding to respectability to contending. And then Buck and Stick were out of those jobs. Buck, of course, went to the Diamondbacks, and Joe Torre takes over. And then they, they become winners. But when you talk to people who are around that team, a lot of people point to the demarcation point as that trade that O'Neill came from Cincinnati for Roberto Kelly. He brought, he brought an energy. He brought an unwillingness to be mediocre to New York and just a drive and a consistency that the Yankees were probably missing and a professionalism that I think they needed. And it's kind of interesting that a kid who grew up loving the Cincinnati Reds, won a World Series in Ohio within his first few years in the major leagues, ends up being a savior of sorts in New York with the – the glorified Yankee dynasty, Paul O'Neill was a huge part of that. 
And I just had Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe on last week. We we're talking about the Boston Celtics, and I asked him the question about uh, Tatum and Brown. And I said, do they get along? And he's like, well, I, you know, he wrote the book about Bird and, and McHale and Parrish. He goes, I can tell you how they got along, but no one really knows. I don't know if they get along. But in your book, it's clear that with the, the core four, how are they going to call it, the Bernie Williams? I mean, this team, that besides, they all got along very well. Jeter and Mariana, like they were very tight. And I, that's why they won four World Series in, in five years. Yeah, O'Neill's relationships with the Yankees start with Mattingly, and he loved Mattingly. And then the next guy he probably was became really tight with was Bernie Williams. Mattingly, unfortunately, retires after 95. He's not around for those winning times. But if you came to the ballpark, Ira, and, and your mission was to win that day, and that was your focus, and that's what I saw in a lot of those mid to late Yankee 90, 90 uh, Yankees teams, Paul O'Neill was your best friend. He wanted to work. Paul O'Neill had a mission to come to the ballpark and succeed. So Posada after that, Girardi, uh, Brocious, Tino Martinez. I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Uh, we mentioned Bernie Williams. But anybody like that, Paul was definitely aligned with them because he wanted to win. That that was the focus. He even talks about it in the book how part of the reason he retired was there was nothing left to accomplish. They, they had won. They, they, they had won four in five years. They didn't win in 2001, the year he retired. But it, it was time to go because they, he felt, I did everything I wanted to do. And then Joe Torre was the perfect manager for someone like Paul O'Neill, the calming influence, and, and actually for that entire team. So he talks a lot. You talk in the book about his relationship with Joe Torre. I, it's interesting, Ira. Buck Showalter is doing great things with the Mets. He worked at the Yes Network with us for the last couple of years. I've known him for 30 years. There was something different about Tory on that 96 team. Buck, phenomenal X's and O's managers, but, but you just mentioned it, the calming influence, kind of the relaxed style. Joe had a soothing impact on that team, and when things were off the rails a little bit, Joe has told me this subsequently, that he would never change his personality. He would never want the team to think that he thought anything was going wrong because he wanted them to stay on an even keel. That's how he had to succeed as a player, knowing that how long the season was. You're going to have peaks and valleys. And I think that went a long way with those Yankee teams and the relationship Joe had with them. And then when we talk about baseball since then, in the last 20-some years, the difficulty for teams to repeat, which hasn't happened, and also to actually stay relevant and very good year after year. Maybe the Dodgers, per se, are like that, but just the winning, the fact that they won in 90, 96, then they lost in 97, but they came back in 98 and had this ridiculous year where they won 114 games, but then to win again in 1999 and then 2000. That's just amazing that that team was able to stay together, that is core group of players, and win those three World Series and have those years to, you know, end with the expanded playoffs and everything. Pretty amazing. Ira, when we look back at baseball history, you've got the Big Red Machine. We've got the Oakland A's teams that won three in a row, uh, the Yankees in 77 and 78. You just mentioned those other Yankee teams. Everybody always talks about the records that won't be broken and just DiMaggio's streak, Ripken's streak. As, as I'm listening to you say what you just said, and as I'm covering baseball year to year, I wonder the next time we might see a franchise do what those late 90s Yankees teams did. I'm not sure we're going to. Three in a row and four out of five, it's so hard to win. And then if you get to the world, you get to the postseason, there's more rounds of postseason now. And if one team gets hot, I mean, did anybody think the Atlanta Braves were, were going to win the championship uh, last year? Did anybody think a few years ago 
the Nationals, who started out 19 and 31, were going to win it. Jeter told me something once, and this was a guy who won a lot. Jeter said it's not always the best team that wins; it's quite often it's the hottest team. It doesn't mean the team that goes 82 and 80 is going to win the postseason. But if you win your 90 plus games and your team's feeling great about itself going into September, and you've got some hot pitchers and and you've got a strong bullpen, you you can get a title. You can grab a title, and that's why winning multiple man that that's going to take a long time to see that happen again. We're talking to Jack Curry, author of Swing and Hit Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught Me uh, about the bio- autobiography of Paul O'Neill. And the one thing we, we, you know, Peso fans that aren't even Yankee fans, they remember these players, the Scott Brocious and all that, because during the playoffs, people like O'Neill had these amazing, uh, just he hitting home runs and hits and everything. And that's what they were with clutch hits. I was surprised when I saw, you know, I knew that in 2000, he was tremendous against the Mets in the classic Subway series where they won, but he was never the MVP of the World Series. Wetland, Brocious, Mariana, and Jeter were all MVPs, and Bernie and Paul were not MVPs of the World Series, even though he should have been maybe the one in 2000 over Jeter. Had a great, he did have a great postseason. He did have a great, a great World Series. You're right. Um, Jeter had a big home run in that series, made, made some big plays, was consistent as well. And to add one more to the ledger, if you go back to 90, Ira, I think uh, O'Neill hit 474 in the ALCS, uh, NLCS, but then he, he's mad at himself. He went one for 12 in the World Series, and his, and his good buddy Chris Sabo, who had a, an okay NLCS, went nuts in the World Series and, and won the World Series MVP. So knowing Paul, though, I think he'll be say, he would, if he was on with us right now, he'd say, I'm happy with the rings. I'm okay not having the MVP. I'm happy having those five rings. And I like the part of the book where he talked about the first time in 96 after they won the title, he came back from the Canyon of Heroes. And he's like, I go to work every day and I see the, the fans and I go to see the stadium. But until you go into the Canyon of Heroes downtown and see the what, million people that showed out, do you realize, wow, there are so many Yankee fans out there? There were a couple of things that Paul told me during the writing of this book that jarred me and that jarred me because I grew up in the tri-state area. I'm a northern New Jersey kid who's been going to New York City on the train since I was 13 years old. So I know the massive size of the area that we live in. And to hear him say it, 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 it made sense. Yeah, there's 40,000 there every night. In his own mind, Paul's thinking, yeah, there's 40,000 on a Tuesday, ah, 40,000 on a Wednesday. You, you don't multiply it by the – they said 3 million in that 96 96- Canyon of Heroes. Whether or not that number was inflated, who knows, but that's the number that they gave. So you're right. He was absolutely floored by that, and it gave him a new appreciation for the fan base. Yeah, I mean, that was that's tremendous. And then it was funny that you said that he retired, and he said he was done after the Arizona series, and then the middle of the next year, he gets a phone call. It's like, hey, you want to be ready to play? And he thought he might have to come back in the middle of the year, and he was like rested, and uh, but that never came to fruition. The Yankees had a couple of, uh, they were using Shane Spencer and John Vanderwall in right field. They had an injury in the mix there. They put an infielder into the outfield, and he looked uncertain out there, Enrique Wilson, and they needed to do something quickly. So Torrey did approach Paul about coming back. Stick Michael also got in on it, and Paul was entertaining the idea, so much so that he was planning to go on a vacation with his family. He took a glove and was long-tossing on the beach with his son, and then before ever... Paul ever had to make a decision, the Yankees made a trade and acquired Raul Mondesi. So he jokes around about it and says he never actually got into the cage, so he doesn't know how rusty he would have been. And then Paul says, knowing me, I would have come back. And I first two games, I would have been 0 for 10, and I would have said, that's it, I'm retiring again. So 
it, it lit the fire in him again for a little bit, but as you said, it never actually ended up happening. And then the one final thing, Jack, is that I, I, I loved the conversations he had in the book with all with other it describes the conversations he had with other stars, and especially like A Rod, because they they didn't really cross paths, but the fact that they would sit there and discuss, even though they had different hitting styles, but he was just so intrigued and always trying to pick, even whether it's uh, Ted Williams or whatever, picking the brains of other star hitters, and the fact that other star hitters re- knew him, and they would you know would spend all this time discussing hitting, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I reached out to A-Rod to interview him for this book, and he, he got back to me in about 15 minutes and said, I'd love to talk to you about Paul O'Neill. I loved watching him. I loved who he was as a hitter, and we went back and forth with that. And then, as you said, we did a whole chapter on a call that Ted Williams made to Paul and just a great hitting mind giving Paul some advice and just how floored he was that Ted knew his swing and that Ted knew what kind of hitter he was. And that's what we tried to do in the book. As much as it's Paul's hitting principles and hitting theories, we also wanted to bring other hitters that impacted him throughout his career into the book. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports today, talking about your book, and I uh, can't wait for other people to read it. It's a great book. As I said, go out to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and pull the book. It's called Swing and Hit, Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught to Me, uh, Paul O'Neill, and we've been talking to Jack Curry, uh, co-author with the book with Paul. Thanks so much, Ira. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much.